On October 16, 1555, four men bound in chains were brought out to the grounds near Oxford, near Balliol College, and um, they'd been held prisoner for about two years in the tower, and as they walked out onto the grounds, they looked and they could see the the stakes that were there for them, one apiece, and, and, the, and all the kindling and the wood that was surrounding it, and they knew, they knew what was coming. Um, their crime was that they were Protestant pastors during a very dangerous time to be a Protestant pastor in England. You may have heard of the infamous Bloody Mary, and you thought it was just a drink. Um, not the case. It's actually, uh, she was a queen, and her thought was to destroy Protestantism. The best thing to do is like kill all of the leaders. And, uh, and so these four uh, very prominent clergy came out there knowing what they were going to do, and they all died a valiant death. The words that have always struck me and that, that I think are kind of appropriate, though, for the sermon today was the words of one Hugh Latimer. And he was speaking to one of the other men. They'd, they'd obviously gotten to know each other quite well. And, uh, and he spoke to his uh, younger friend, Ridley, and he said, uh, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley. And play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Isn't that a great just line of, of, of just utter complete confidence in what was God was doing? He was saying, yeah, we're going to die a miserable, horrible death. Comparable to a candle being lit and, and being burned. And, and it was a horrible way to die and, and, and some suffered longer than others for whatever reason, but, um, but he saw that his life was going to be used of God in a pivotal way. Do you believe that about your own life? Interesting question for you to mull over for just a moment here, but uh, when we look at our text today, we're looking at a gentleman by the name of Stephen, and Stephen is going to play an incredibly pivotal role in the kingdom of God. In fact, one could argue in the entirety of the book of Acts, if you're looking for just that sort of fulcrum, if I can use that term from math class or physics or whatever, you know, on the teeter-totter teeter -totter middle, you know what I'm talking about, the fulcrum, the point at which everything swings, the point at which the whole kingdom of God kind of, boom, goes in, in a new direction, it is Stephen. It is, it is the death of Stephen. And who was Stephen? He was just an ordinary guy, pretty ordinary. He was a deacon. <laughs> All you deacons here at Grace, this, this, is, this is what you're aiming toward. Uh, but he's, you know, you, you, people might even use the word just a deacon. He was just a deacon. He wasn't an apostle. You know, the apostles had said, look, we cannot do what you're asking us to do to wait on the widows and, and take care of them because we have something that God has called us to that is different. We're, we're, to, we're to preach the word. We are um, to be in prayer. We don't have enough time to do that and do justice to the widows. So they appointed those seven, if you will. And, um, and that's Stephen. Stephen is, is, is just, just one of, um, of those gentlemen. And yet from what we would see as humble beginnings, we see that he is going to be powerfully used for the kingdom of God. Now, what can we take from that? What are we allowed to take? When you read through the book of Acts, you kind of, you struggle with that a little bit. Like, what's for me, and, and, and what is just for me to learn? 
What can I imitate? We're not apostles, and I'll just keep saying that. You'll get bored of me saying it, but we're not. We, we are not apostles. We're not even living in, in that apostolic period of which certain things were true, and, and, and probably those things are not true for the church today. And so, so how do we manage this? And I think the truth of the matter is that we can say that God can use us in pivotal, pivotal ways for his kingdom. God can use us in pivotal ways for his kingdom. Now, if you, if you look at Hugh Latimer and the other three, or you look at Stephen, maybe you're looking at this going, I would just as soon not be pivotal. I would like to be a non-pivotal Christian in, in the grand scheme of things. Just let me sweep on through, kind of right under, and, uh, and, and not have to worry about it. But if, but if you want your life to be of, of any meaning and, and purpose and and for God to use you, then, then you should really pay attention today because I think this is, this is where it speaks to us. First of all, God can use us beyond our own personal gifts and limitations. And that's the very first thing you see with Stephen is that this goes way beyond what we would have thought we could expect. Look at what it says. And Stephen, remember, he's a, what is he again? Deacon, yeah, proto-deacon. We'll call him a proto-deacon, prototype deacon. But... Uh, but yeah, a deacon, more, more or less. And it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. He's a little off his job description here, isn't he? Because it was very much the area that the apostles were, were known for. They were the ones that specifically had the confirming signs and wonders to authenticate that they were, in fact, apostles. Now, they laid hands on them. You might say, well, there's something in that, perhaps. But, but these are not apostles. No one, no one calls them that. No one says, oh, well, these are few, more apostles. They're, they're, they're deacons, is what they are. And it says that he did signs and wonders. And it also says that he was full of grace and power. What does that mean? Full of grace and power. When you use the term grace and, and, and you use it of a, of a human being, that could mean that they are gracious. When you think about being a gracious person, what are you saying there? You're, you're kind, you're gentle, you're magnanimous, you're, you're winsome maybe. I don't know, whatever you think of as gracious. And then you put that with power. And that's kind of a cool combination. It reminds us of Jesus. You know, Jesus was Meek, he said of himself, you know, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and, and, uh, and take my yoke upon you, learn from me, I'm meek and lowly. You know, you know those ver- that verse. Um, is that what it means, that he was gracious and powerful, meekness? I don't think so. It's possible, but what I think he's talking about is grace, and this is the word from which we get the idea, uh, the, well, the word charismatic, which has to do with the word gift, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are the charisma, if you will. I think when it says that he, he's full of, of this grace and power, I think it's saying that, that he was full of the work and the gifting of the Holy Spirit. Here this guy is called not to preach, not to, not to do signs and wonders, none of that stuff. He wasn't called to be an apostle. Just, he's just supposed to take care of tables in terms of his job description. And yet he was full of of the the gifting of the Holy Spirit and the power he needed for that. God is mightily using him beyond his own personal gifts and limitations. It's like in a hospital. Some of you 
are medical people and you've, you, you, you work in that kind of a setting. Imagine if they hired Joe the plumber. They hired Joe the plumber at, at, over here at the, what is it now? It's uh, the University of Kansas Hospital, Great Bend Campus, or I don't know, whatever it's called. But they hired Joe the plumber, and they're like, we need you because we cannot ask our surgeons to be plunging toilets. So that's what your job description is. You're going to plunge toilets and keep the plumbing working. And oh, by the way, we need somebody to do brain surgery today. Would you mind stepping in there really quickly for us? Well, would you, how would you feel about that if you, that was your brain surgeon for a day? Eh, how much harm can he do? Uh, that's kind of like what's going on here. These, this, is, this is Stephen being used in a way that goes well beyond what he had been called to do. And I think this does speak to us. That God can use us in pivotal ways and that God can actually exceed what we think we're capable of. Now, we're very interested at Grace at helping you figure out where you fit in ministry. In fact, if you come through the, um, the membership process, that's one of the pieces we try to do is help you kind of nail that down as best you can and, and understand what your gifting has been used of God for in the past and how it might. We look at that, but at the same time, we cannot limit God. We can't say, God, you could, you know, I have these gifts, you can't use me any other way. I've said this many times, I'm not an evangelist, not with a big E. If, if, if we think of that as a gift, a role, an office in the church, not mine. But you know what? We're all called to be evangelists in another sense. Maybe it's a small E, and I present the gospel to people, and, when I, and, and I preach the gospel up here, and when I present, I don't sit there and go, oh, well, I'm not an evangelist, so God can't possibly use the gospel that I preach to, to win someone to Christ. That'd be a horrible way to, of going at it, wouldn't it? God, God can use us so far beyond, you know, not everybody has a gift of mercy, but are we allowed to not be merciful for that reason? <laughs> well, I don't. I don't have a gift of mercy, so I'll just let that, that sick friend of mine uh, go without a phone call or, whatever, or a prayer or whatever it might be. No, we're all, we're all called to those things. We, we're not all called to be teachers, but look at all the different ways that, that you can teach. If by that you mean passing on spiritual truth. Informally, in places like clusters, small groups, ABFs, things like that. But, but I mean, you got Sunday school, Wana, all those different ways that the church needs people to plug in. Don't think that because you've kind of got a handle on, well, I'm good at these things, does not limit God. I'm not trying to get you to think highly of yourself. I'm not trying to discourage you either, but I'm not trying to get you to get all, you know, inflated. I'm trying to, I'm trying to say to you, we have a very big God who can use people where they are, and even with the deficits they have, he can, he, can, he can do great things in their life. Secondly, God's enemies may rise up against us. That's kind of a given, isn't it? You expect that, don't you? How many expect some enemies to rise up against you? Yes, that's called paranoia, but, um, but it's... it's <laughs> Being used of God does not mean that you get to be like the mayor of a one-horse town where you run unopposed. Look at what it says. It says, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now, who are these guys? Well, for one thing, we know they're Jewish because it says that they were of these various synagogues. And a synagogue is a unique word to the Jewish community and the Jewish community alone. So, okay, so we know they're Jewish. 
And we know where they're from. They're from places like Cyrene. We've talked about Cyrene before. That is where modern-day Libya is, so from North Africa. And you move over a little bit. Actually, you can follow this around in, in kind of a... I guess it would be anti-clockwise direction starting uh, on, on the western side of North Africa. And you work over to Alexandria in Egypt. And then, and then you bump on up to um, Cilicia, which was kind of northwest of Israel just a little bit, just, just off from Syria. Um, and then all the way over to Asia. You think, wait, Asia's back that way. No, we're talking about Asia Minor. But the thing that you see here is this covers a lot of ground. It pretty much kind of covers the whole landscape of what we would call the Jewish diaspora. How many have heard the term Jewish diaspora? Just It's kind of what it sounds like, that the dispersion, the diaspora sounds like something Latin, probably. The diaspora, that was the Jews that had been you know, driven out of the homeland, carried off in captivity, had chosen through persecution or whatever, to locate in other places. And can you kind of guess how people would be if they were part of that kind of a community? Like if you're Jewish and you're living in Israel, you don't go around going, hey, I'm proud to be Jewish. Everybody else goes, so what? We're all Jewish, man. Just, just go back to work. Stop it. But if you're a Jewish person in that day living in Cilicia or Cyrene or Alexandria, you were part of a minority community and you were used to having to kind of have a backbone and stand up and go, I'm Jewish, you know? And, uh, and the way they would have felt about their homeland, the way they would have felt about the temple when they prayed, you know, like Daniel, they faced, the, they faced in the direction of where the temple was. And so the, these would have been people with, with incredible zeal and chances are, they would have looked at Stephen as a renegade one of them. Like, this is our mess. We need, we need to clean it up. Remember, all the names of the deacons were all, do you, you recall this word, Hellenistic? Maybe your version of the scripture actually just makes it simpler and says Grecian, but it's that, in other words, they, they were Hellenized. They were outside of, of, that, um, of that area of their homeland. And so maybe they looked at Stephen and went, this is one of ours, and he's gone rogue. He's become one of these weird Christians, and we've, we've got to shut that down. So they rose up. What does that sound like? They rose up. Does that sound friendly? Not particularly friendly. And they disputed. How about the word disputed? Do you hear anything in that? That's not like, a, let's have a little reasonable discussion here. That's like the trolls on the Internet. Like, I see what you said there, and I'm going to dispute with you. I'm going to take you to task. I'm, I'm going to take you down to Chinatown. That's what they, they have this idea that they're going to come, and they're just going to ream him uh, up and down and, and, and get him squared away. And it doesn't work so well. To quote the old Japanese proverb, the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. That is a Japanese proverb, by the way. Appropriate at this time of the Olympics, I think. But yeah, it's that idea of you want to blend in, you don't want to stand out, because if you stand up, that's, that's, you're going to get hammered down. When you want to be used of God in a pivotal way, if that is your heart's desire, that God, that God use you for his kingdom purposes, not so that you could be something and move, you know, have a high view of yourself or anything like that, but just that you want to see God's kingdom move forward and be, and be blessed and, and that you can give your all to it. If you want to be pivotal, guess what? I mean, you might be pivotal like Stephen was pivotal. Jesus said, if they hate you, remember they hated me first. 
He said, if you were of the world, this is John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Be of comfort, play the man, Master Ridley, play the man, expect that. It's just part and parcel of what it means to follow Christ, and all the more if you want your life to really count for his kingdom. Thirdly, God's Spirit can fill us with words of wisdom that are beyond us. I'm thinking here uh, back to something Jesus said in the, in the Gospels. In fact, he says it a couple places, but hearken back. You, you remember the sermon I preached on Luke chapter 12? Neither do I. Uh, that's okay, but look at this verse from there. Um, and when they bring you before the synagogues, this is Jesus, of course, speaking, and the rulers and the authorities, no synagogues, we got this four synagogues here. Um, Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. All right? That's what he promised. And now we see a lot of stuff in the book of Acts. You could just go back and you can find words of Jesus that are being fulfilled at that moment. And these are being fulfilled. Look at what it says in Acts 6.10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So there's two things that they can't withstand, it says here. Um, on the one hand, it is the wisdom with, it, with which he was speaking, and it was the Holy Spirit with which he was speaking. But really, if you're, if you're used to studying the Scripture, you probably see something there. It's not really so much two things in, in reality, is it? It's sort of the, the idea of these, and, and the Bible does this a lot, where it's two parallel, basically synonymous things that are, that are one. It's saying he's full of the Holy Spirit. And because he's full of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is giving him words to speak, his words and the Spirit, which are really one, they're coming out and being expressed in one way, are that which, which these, uh, these people cannot withstand. Stephen puts himself there in the hot seat. God's enemies come after him, but God gives him a ready response. They couldn't withstand him. Who does that remind you of? You're in church, so there's only one proper answer. You're right, it's Jesus. Yeah. Didn't Je- Jesus had all those, you remember me talking about the thug life moments? Yeah, boy, you're a quiet crowd today. Thug life moments. If you go on uh, Facebook and other places, they're always having these memes and it says thug life and it's, it's just when somebody else shuts someone down with just a a perfect response. Maybe they're going back and forth on Twitter and somebody just totally owns the other and they go, that's a thug life moment. And, and Jesus was that way. Every time they would try to catch Jesus, like, hey, Jesus, should we pay, we should pay our taxes? Oh, this is gonna get him really good. And he's like, I don't know. Why don't you pull that coin you got out of your pocket there while here in the temple where you probably really shouldn't even have that little mini idol that you're carrying around there that has, whose picture is that again? Oh, Caesar's right, yeah. Give, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, that thug, that thug life kind of moment. And that's what's, that's what's going on, on here. Should we expect the same exact spirit and the same help, if you will, when, when we are put in such situations? I mean, do, should we expect to be Neo in the Matrix? You remember him, don't you, Neo? He'd be running along, and then he'd, oh, I gotta fly a helicopter. 
Maybe it was his girlfriend that flew. I don't remember. But, you know, all at once he needs to know how to fly a helicopter. And he just like, give me this. And boom, and he download it. And he can fly the hell, that kind of thing. Is that what's being talked about here exactly? That, that, that we end up just, you know, being, being way smarter than we, that, that suddenly we've, we've memorized the whole Bible that we never bothered to memorize a single verse of up till now. Is that what it's saying? Apparently, you're not certain about that. No, I don't think that's what it's saying at all. But I do believe that when we put ourselves at God's disposal and God has us in, in such a pivotal place and, in, and intends to use us in that pivotal way for his kingdom, I believe God does give us words that, we did, that sometimes we didn't even see that coming. How many have ever had that experience? If you've been a Christian for a while and, and you found yourself, you were, you were making a defense of your faith, you were, you were, you were witnessing to someone, whatever the situation might have been, and God just, you heard yourself say something, you went, that was good. Man, that was really good. How did I come up with that? Yeah? yeah I was, we were just talking in our, in our cluster the other night, um, which isn't really a cluster, but a group of guys that were, and, uh, and we were talking, and, and I brought that up, and one, and one person, yeah, it was just the other day, I was witnessing to this woman, and she said this, and, and I just said that, and I went, that's really good. Did you, did you see that one coming? Not really, no. It's just like, I, I, and I believe that God does that. We need to trust God that God wants to use us for his kingdom, that God still cares about his kingdom. It's not so much about us, it's about the kingdom, it's about his kingdom and that that kingdom advance and, and, and take root in the hearts and lives of men and women around us and God will, in fact, use us and give us words beyond our own wisdom. Do you believe that? You have to put yourself in that situation and, and, uh, and find out. Having said that, it's important to know also that God's enemies do not tend to fight fairly, which is weird, right? I thought from the movies that all enemies just played by the Marcus of, of Queensberry rules. Didn't you? I mean, think about this. Every James Bond villain or Marvel villain or whatever, they never just go, okay, I've got my enemy at my disposal. Hand me a gun, bam, bam, and they're dead. Right? James Bond just dies. on. He does die when he gets hit with bullets, doesn't he? But they never do that. They're like, oh, I have a plan for you, Mr. Bond. You know? and he, <laughs> I'm just going to leave you here with the acid, and I'm going to turn my back and walk away for 30 minutes and see what happens. You know, like, why do they do that? They're always, they're always giving him so much of an opportunity, which he always then gets away. But look at what they do. They don't, they're, not, they're not playing that game. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So we have kind of a scene change that happens here. You've had him out publicly debating with these, these people from these various synagogues, and they can't withstand him. So they've tried to go high, and it didn't work. So now they're like, okay, well, we'll go low. We're, we're, we're playing you know, clean. Now we're going to go dirty. And they just go after him a different way. They, they get these people to come forward and accuse him of blasphemy. What happens if you get accused of blasphemy? 
you get killed. If, if, they, if they prove it to be true or believe it to be true, it's like what happens in Pakistan today. If you're a Christian living in Pakistan, which is a Muslim nation, um, there's not, it's not so much that there's this formal persecution where they just go around rounding up and killing Christians as a, as a country, but what happens is, is that if a, if a local Pakistani wants, the, you know, wants to buy your ground and you're not willing to sell it to him for a certain price, or if, if his son wants to marry your daughter and you're not really willing for that to happen, what, what happens a lot of times is they arrest Christians on blasphemy charges. Yeah, I heard him say something about uh, Muhammad, and that's all it takes, and then they're, then they're put to death. And, and then the person ends up getting, that's exactly the kind of thing that's happening here. These men charge Stephen with speaking words against Moses and God. And, and, and they get the leaders back together. So we're back in front of the council again. We're back in front of this, this whole tribunal. They take him to this kangaroo court. And what they essentially say is he's speaking against this place. We've heard that before. He's speaking against the temple. And he's speaking against Moses. In fact, he's saying that Jesus is going to destroy the temple and he's going to change the, 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 the customs of Moses. And that will get you in a lot of trouble. The thing is, these charges are mostly false. At best, they're a horrible, horrible distortion. Did Jesus say he would destroy the temple? No. Jesus did not say he would destroy the temple. Now, he predicted that it would happen to the Jews themselves, he said, destroy this temple, meaning you destroy it, meaning his body, and I will raise it up in three days. So he did say that, but that was a complete, so they've got it flipped around saying that Jesus said he was going to destroy the temple. And as to the, the law, what was Jesus' attitude toward God's law? That it, was, that it was holy, that no jot or tittle would pass away from the law until everything was fulfilled. And Jesus came and he fulfilled that law and he took it to a deeper level. He, he called them not just to, to cleanse the outside of the cup, but to look at the inside, to love God with all your heart and mind and soul and strengthen your neighbor as yourself. I mean, these, were, these charges were completely and utterly bogus, but they, they were for the purpose of getting rid of Stephen. And literally getting rid of him, like wiping him from the face of the earth. Aren't you glad that none of our enemies today fight so unfairly as this? We're so much better off. We're all up against Bond villains today. Maybe. I don't know. Honestly, I can't say some days. I just, my, my wife was reading some, something to me today that she was seeing on a news website, and they were talking about how um, eventually uh, what will all be prevented um, from buying and selling which sounds vaguely biblical, but if, at some point, if everything becomes digital and you're paying with, uh, with PayPal and all these other things and, and the only way you can sell is to have it listed on, on eBay, or whatever the case may be, that, that, that it will eventually be that, that these bigger entities like Facebook and whatnot will just shut it down. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe that'll happen within the next five years for all I know, but you, the, the point is your enemy in the world would be the devil. We don't f fight just against flesh and blood, but then there'll be flesh and blood uh, representations of that, won't there? And we will face those kinds of things, and maybe it's just as simple as, as getting a put down on Facebook. I think we can all handle that. Am I right? Yeah, we get our feelings hurt, but what about if you're getting called into the, your employer's office 
What if you're, you're in the military and you're called to base command and, and you're brought in there because you're, you're, you're being too vocal about your Christian faith? What if you're called to the principal's office? What if you're a Christian baker or a photographer or whatever the case might be and you're gonna end up losing your whole livelihood and probably all of your savings by, their ton, by the time they're done penalizing you for taking a biblical stance? If you want to be pivotal for the kingdom of God, you have to accept the fact that we have an enemy, and that enemy does not fight fairly. Lastly, God's glory can brighten our faces in the fellowship of his suffering. Now Luke paints a picture um, in, in this, and I think he must have gotten it from talking to Paul. Remember, Paul is at this little soiree. Yeah? He's there witnessing it. It says, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What does that mean? Does that mean that he lacked all facial hair? I don't believe that. Um, does it mean that he looked particularly innocent? Oh, he had the, oh, he had the face of an angel. Did you see him there? You know, no, I don't think it means any of that. What is it we associate with angels when, when, when they're in view, which is kind of something that goes along with God's presence? Brightness, right? Light. You think about when the angel appeared to the shepherds out there as they were keeping their sheep, and, uh, and it says the glory of the Lord shone round them. And there's other, there's other indications of the scripture that there's that kind of she, almost Shekinah glory of God uh, that, that's visible with angels. Now put that together for a moment with Moses. You recall that Moses' face shone every time that he had been in the presence of God. When he would go into the tent of meeting, he would come out and his face would be shining. So I believe that when it says his face is like the face of an angel, I think he's talking about that, that, kind, of, that kind of afterglow of being in the presence of God. Of God, having been in the presence of Jesus. Jesus on the uh, Mount of Transfiguration, what happened to him? He became so bright that they couldn't even look upon him. And I think that's what's going on here. John Stott points out, I think it's John Stott that pointed this out, that there's an irony here. They're accusing him of speaking against Moses and against the temple. And yet, what happened when Moses went into the tabernacle, went into the tent of meeting? He came out, what did he look like? Looked like an angel because his face was bright from the presence of God. And that's what's happening here, except it's, it, it's, it's that, pre, that presence and fellowship of Christ. I believe what we're talking about is actually, I think we could define this as the fellowship of his suffering. I think the reason he looked like this was because he was coming into this, into this experience of suffering for Christ. And that's when the fellowship, I think that's when our fellowship with Christ is at its, at, at its zenith. We are meant to be in fellowship, in union with Christ from the very beginning. You think, well, this is just for martyrs, right? How many have been, bat- I won't, don't, I might embarrass someone, but raise a hand in your heart. <laughs> How many have been baptized? And when you, and when you were baptized, you were bapti- baptized into the likeness of Christ's death and burial and resurrection. And part of what you're saying when, when, you're, when you have died with Christ is that your life belongs to him. And, th- and that, you, that you have a participation in, in that death, as it were. 
Stephen is going to experience the ultimate, which is the fellowship of his suffering in the, in the actual perishing of, of, his, of his outward body. He's not just a prototype of, of deacons that will follow after him, but he is the first, the prototype of millions and millions of Christians who have died for their faith throughout the centuries. And that's good, yeah? That's good. Paul could pray. We don't think of it that way. I mean, maybe if you think about martyrdom, I don't know how many of you do toy with this. How many have read Fox's Book of Martyrs? There's something very, very um, noble and heroic. I think men naturally gravitate towards stories that are heroic. So if, you've, if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs and you read about Hugh Latimer and other people like that, it, 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 in, it inspires you. Like a lot of us are probably sitting here going, no, again, I'd rather have the non-pivotal version. Give me the non-pivotal version. I'm happy with that. But you see, it's when we suffer with Christ that we are, we are closest to him. Paul could say, he could say that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death. The psalmist writes, those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Far from thinking of a pivotal life from, for Christ as something tragic, this ought to be, this ought to be what, we, what we long for. And, what, and I'm not saying that we should sit around hoping that we'll get ground to dust or fed to lions or something like that. But that our lives might count for the kingdom, that our lives might be laid on the altar, and that God would use him as he sees fit. And that we would know what it is like to participate in the fellowship of his suffering. That's something that, we, that I think we ought to long for. When I think about my, my, my life right now, and I'm caught up thinking these kinds of thoughts quite frequently as it were because of my age. I look at it and I go, well, how does this finish out? You know, how, does, how, does this, how does this all go? Where, where does it go? And if you're an American and you've got a 401k and all those things, you think about life and you think about, well, you know, Florida can be nice part of the year and stuff. And you start thinking that way. And, um, and I think, you know, but whatever it is, I don't want to burn out. I want to burn up. Does that make sense? I'm not sure the language quite works quite the way I want it to here. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like there's the burnout. We all are, you know, we just get tired. Like, ah, oh, forget about it. This is just too hard. I'm walking away. I don't want to ever do that. I don't want to ever do that. But burning up? Yeah. Play the man. Play the man. We're going to light a candle tonight. Oh, yeah. What do you say? That's me. You're talking, we're talking about me. We're gonna, I'm going to burn up? Yeah. If that's what it takes. If that, do you want to go out dull or bright? You want to go out dull or bright. What, what would you want your life to be about? And, and again, this is not a sermon where I'm going, hey, try to be all that you can be and grab for, and I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying within the sovereign, and God is still sovereign, isn't he? He was sovereign over his church, then he, he was sovereign over his kingdom. His kingdom had to advance. Stephen is going to be the absolute moment at which this just breaks free and, and all kind of kingdom purposes are realized. God is still sovereign today and he's still 
for his kingdom. He's still for the kingdom of Christ, his son, the Lord Jesus. He's still all about that and for that. And God can use us. God can use us beyond our limitations and and where we think we are and what we think he's equipped us with because he's God. It's not about you or me. It's not about our, our shortcomings, our weaknesses, our limitations. It's about the same holy God who can, can use his people for his purposes. And yes, the enemy is there and, and the enemy will rise up and the enemy won't fight fair. But that same, that same God is capable of, of giving us wisdom and more importantly, of brightening our faces in the fellowship of Christ's suffering. That ought to be something that we can lay hold of today and go, that's, yes, yes, Lord Jesus. I don't, I, I don't think that I'm good enough to be a martyr in that sense, but if it would be your will to, re, to have that joy in your suffering, absolutely. Every Christian heart ought to be able to read this and say, yes, Lord Jesus, yes, I trust you if that's how, but, but by all means, great or small, may my life count for the kingdom of God. Amen? Can every Christian today say amen to that? If you're not a believer, hey, that's just the loudest you've been the whole time. That's good. Um, If you're not a believer today, then that means you're not part of his kingdom, which I don't know, a lot of people come with all kinds of different philosophies, but chances are if you're not a Christian, then probably you just look at the universe as being pointless. And I'm here to tell you your life doesn't have to be that way. Your, your life does not have to be meaningless. Your life can be pivotal, but the only way for that to really happen is for you to come into that fellowship we're talking about, that fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is his kingdom that matters. And, uh, and to secure that kingdom, he came into this world, died for sinners, died on a cross, was buried and rose the third day so that sinners, sinners like like yours truly and sinners like you can be saved. If you will turn from your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then like Stephen, you, you, can, you can lose your life. <laughs> because the Bible says that see, the one that seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Do you want to be a loser? It's really in effect what we're asking today. Do you want to lose your life and be united and joined with Jesus Christ for eternity and have your life count for something? Come to him. Come to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, when we look at Stephen, we do see something that feels larger than life, Lord. But remind us that, that Stephen was not an apostle. He wasn't this, this person that we think of as being all omni-gifted and and all, all of those things in his flesh, Lord, he was called to serve tables. And yet, Lord, you used him in one of the most pivotal ways. And, and we thank you for that. We thank you for the way that that speaks to our heart. Help us, Lord, to have that desire to, to, to be going out bright and not dull. And, and burning up and not burning out. And I, I pray that you would just encourage your people with that, Lord. Strengthen us to that task, Lord. Remind us of who you are. And that, that you are capable, that, that you are powerful beyond our gifting. And, uh, and we thank you for that today. And Lord, again, I'm not an evangelist by nature. It's not my, it's not my chief gift. But I, I pray, Lord, that your gospel would go out today and, and touch hearts. And that someone who hears this even 
might turn to Christ today and find their salvation and, uh, and be able to be part of this great kingdom of Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen.